Well, this is one of those nights when we need to remember that we are to trust in the Lord and not in the uh, arm of flesh, that our hope is in the Lord, not in politics or political solutions, because ultimately the only solution is God's solution. And as long as we're living in the devil's world, we're constantly going to be under assault from the cosmic system, either directly through various uh, satanic influences or indirectly through various thought systems that Satan promotes in order to uh, distract people from the Word of God to destroy the and to diminish the ability to promote the gospel. And not that I believe we're living close to the rapture, we could be. Wouldn't it be nice if it were tonight? (laughs) But as we approach the end of the church age, I believe that things are going to get progressively worse, especially if there is not much of a transition period between the end of the church age and the beginning of the tribulation. We don't know. We go see these trends of history down through time, and there have been... The rise and fall of numerous empires and the rise and fall of numerous uh, nations who have all had strong Christian influences at one time or another. You can go back to the early church in Ephesus and the uh, province of Asia. You can go back to uh, certain areas within the Roman Empire. You can go back to the period of the Reformation in Germany and Switzerland. Holland, areas of France, Britain, and each of these subsequently uh, go negative, get caught up in cosmic thinking, and the history moves on. So we need to be reminded that we still have a witness, and that's the greatest impact we can have. And who knows, maybe the election won't go well, and it will energize a lot of Christians, and a lot of Christians will wake up that they need to get right with the Lord. You just never know. All we can do is walk faithfully with the Lord. So I think it's appropriate I start with the uh, faith rest promises that I normally recite, that we're to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because Republicans are in the White House. (laughs) See, I knew that I was losing your concentration there because he trusteth in thee. So our trust is in the Lord. Well, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of history. You are working out your plan in history in order to demonstrate a multitude of different truths about your character, about your love, about your grace, your integrity. And as we go through history, what we see in this world with the rise and fall of kingdoms as history has moved through one dispensation after another is that there is no peace, there is no happiness, there is no stability in anything other than you. You are the God who who is our rock, you are our fortress, you are the one who gives us uh, certainty and stability, you are the one who has declared the end from the beginning, and it is our responsibility to rest in you and to execute your plan for the Christian life on a consistent basis. And, Father, whether we live through times of adversity or times of 
uh, great prosperity, whether we live in, live in times of national uh, ascent or national decline, is not really important. What is important is the testimony that we have before angels and men of your grace and of your power, and that no matter what the circumstances are, we can have uh, perfect happiness, perfect stability and joy because we know that you are in control. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Kings tonight, we pray that um, the lessons that we see here will also help to reinforce in our own thinking the fact that you control history and that you are working out your plans and purposes. And just as Israel and Judah in the Old Testament had their uh, periods of prosperity and periods of adversity, so we see the same thing in our nation. So there are many principles that we can derive as we go through our study here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we studied last time in 1 Kings chapter 12 as Jeroboam became the king for the northern empire. The northern empire becomes known as Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom is composed of basically ten tribes, the southern kingdom of two. Although as Jeroboam takes charge and begins to lead the northern kingdom in apostasy, we know that numerous Levites moved south and numerous other uh, believers in the northern kingdom from all of the different tribes also uh, packed their bags and headed south to get away from the apostasy in the north and the certainty of divine discipline. Jeroboam was much like uh, modern politicians. I think politicians and kings from all eras, eras who are not operating on the truth of God's word in any way are simply out to uh, benefit their own power base, to expand their own influence, to get as much approbation as they possibly can, and to control as much as they can, and to make a name for themselves. That is essentially what kings and politicians have done for, for centuries. It is only the rare statesman who has true freedom in his soul because of Bible doctrine. Only the true statesman that has objectivity can have the type of humility that is necessary to be a godly king, a godly leader, whether it's in the local church, whether it's in civil government, or whether it is in the home. It starts with humility, and it starts with grace orientation. And this was missing in Jeroboam. He had no doctrinal orientation, despite the fact that God had given him tremendous grace. He had been told by a prophet before the split of the kingdom, before the death of of Solomon, that God would split the kingdom and put him in as the ruler in the northern kingdom, and that if he would walk with God, a promise very similar to the one he had made to David, although the one to David was not conditional, it was to Jeroboam, if he would walk with God, God would establish his name, establish his kingdom, but like so many people, believers and unbelievers, so many people who uh, cannot pass the prosperity test, They want to establish their name on their terms rather than on God's terms. And so when the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom and they appointed Jeroboam to be the king, he began to think about how he could secure his dynasty, forgetting what God said, if you obey me and walk with me, I will establish your house. He wants to establish his house on his own terms. And he's afraid that if the people in the north keep going down to Jerusalem every two or three months for one of the uh, pilgrimage festivals, such as Passover, Pentecost, uh, Yom Kippur, that they would see the splendor of the Solomonic Temple. They would see the splendor of uh, the blessings that God had given the southern kingdom, and he would lose his power base. So he just completely forgets the objective divine viewpoint that God had given him, informing him that God was splitting the kingdom and he wasn't going to put it back together. And so we see that in his soul, he is enslaved to the darkness of human viewpoint. And that is the same picture that Paul gives in Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, 
Paul talks about the fact that we are all born slaves to the sin nature because there is nothing else you can do. That's the only nature that any human being has when they are born. They are born with a sin nature, and even though they can choose to do moral things or immoral things, it all flows out of the sin nature. And we are born, as Paul says in Romans 6, we are born slaves to unrighteousness. And in the darkness of sin, every human being is enslaved in his soul. And the only way to have soul freedom comes by responding to the grace of God. In the Old Testament, they believed that God would send a Messiah, a Savior, who would uh, redeem them and establish a kingdom. In the New Testament, we look back to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and we trust in him so that at the beginning of Galatians chapter uh, 5, we're told that uh, in Christ we have freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, and he has set us free from the tyranny of sin and unrighteousness. And so it is only when there is an external category of righteousness, an external category of right and wrong, that we can live to and establish and implement within a culture, can there be true freedom. And that can only come from the influence of believers as they function as salt and light within a fallen world. And we will never redeem the culture. It's impossible. It's a silly phrase uh, to redeem the culture because you can't redeem the culture. The culture is the cosmic system. But we can have an impact on the culture. We can provide that which gives stability to the culture, that which gives an objective frame of reference uh, for the, for the culture, but Jeroboam has rejected that in negative volition. Civilization after civilization rejects the truth, substitutes the fantasy of the rebellious creature, and then attempts to live his life, construct all of the uh, society around this uh, fantasy concept that is antagonistic to the will of God and antagonistic to the Word of God. So Jeroboam now has to justify what he has done. He has been operating on the arrogant skills, and so not only is he uh, <clears throat> involved in uh, self, uh, self-denial, I mean self-deception, and he is now involved in self-justification, and he's going to establish his self-justification on the basis of a religious framework. And I want you to pay attention to this. This is something that, that you were never taught when you were in any uh, public school. You were never taught this when you were in college or any university classroom on Western civilization or the history of ideas. But at the very center of every system of thought, there has to be a focus, an, an explanation of ultimate reality. And that ultimate reality is either there's nothing or there's God, or there's some sort of God. But that's the only option. So at the very core of any thought system, it, it, is, it rests upon some idea related to uh, religion, related to some sort of spiritual ideology. And that then informs everything else, whether it's the... Uh, divinity of the uh, ancient Egyptian kings or whether it is uh, based upon the truth of God's word as you see in the influence on the United States of America in the 16th and 17th, uh, 16th and 1700s. Whatever it is, there's always some foundation and that foundation shifted in the history of this country in the 19th century and and the satanic cosmic system just chipped away bit by bit, piece by piece, progressively through the 19th century, through various uh, philosophical systems and thought systems, until by the end of the 19th century, there is a, has been a radical shift in the way people thought about God, the way people thought about Christianity. And Christianity itself, at the beginning of the 20th century, was enmeshed in an enormous battle against uh, liberalism, the rise uh, of liberalism, 
was attacking the very foundations of Christianity, the infallible and errant word of God, the deity of Christ, the reality of miracles, uh, substitutionary atonement of Christ, a literal second coming of Christ. These were considered the fundamentals of Christianity. And if you believed in the fundamentals of Christianity, you were a fundamentalist. That was the original meaning, um, meaning of the term. Well, we have to recognize that at the core of every political system, at the core of every thought system, there's some sort of religious idea. And Jeroboam recognized this, and he knew that he had to shift the spiritual orientation of the people in the northern kingdom, or he would possibly lose everyone if they kept going down to Jerusalem and saw the glory of the temple there. And so he began a process of historical and religious revisionism, not unlike most uh, most human viewpoint-based kingdoms. And he built an altar in Bethel and another altar, as we saw last time. Bethel was in the su- southern part, right on the border with the southern kingdom, on the southern part of Israel. And Dan is in the far north of Israel. And he set up these shrines and said, of these golden calves, and said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And delivered you from slavery in Egypt. So it's a it's a historical revisionism, but it is a religious revisionism at its very core. And we see the same kinds of lies being promoted today and believed today. We see ideas such as we're not the product of the creation of a personal infinite God. We're the products of of evolution. So we have the Darwinistic myth that is necessary for a pagan culture. If you're going to reject God and a creator God who creates everybody, you have to have some sort of origin tale in order to explain how we got here. And so you have the rise of, of, uh, of Darwinism in the 19th century. And to go along with a uh, that type of creation myth, there has to be an explanation of the nature of man. And so at the same time, we have the rise of Freudian uh, psychology and secular psychology to explain man totally within a closed universe and a mechanistic type of universe. And so that develops later into Jungian psychology and various other psychological models. But the break, the really important move and shift occurs uh, with Freud. You have other explanation systems that came up through uh, Herbert Spencer and others related to explaining the rise of society and social institutions. And, of course, you can't have a society function apart from some sort of economic theory. And so at the same time, you have uh, Karl Marx and the rise of of, um, Marxism in relation to explaining uh, labor and capital and all the theories related to that. And it's it's no uh, act of no chance that all these things came together and were developed and thought out within uh, two decades of one another. They all come out of the same soil, and that soil was the soil that was prepared by the uh, radical enlightenment uh, period of the 1600s and 1700s and truly got, became established with the uh, subjective epistemology uh, views of knowledge that came out of Immanuel Kant. So we have this this historical revisionism that comes from the myths, the origin myths of Darwin and the myths of these other other systems. In order to justify their position, they began to attack the very foundations of the uh, American Republic. And you had other myths develop. We weren't a republic anymore. We were a democracy. Uh, we had other ideas that came along that we weren't really a Christian nation, And except you can go back to the founding fathers and you can go to one court decision after another court decision down to the 19th century where they said, yes, indeed, the United States was a Christian nation that was founded upon the ideals that come out of the Bible and out of Christianity. Uh, in the 20th century, late 20th century, and up to today, you have uh, other 
fantasies that are promoted as the truth, such as socialism works. Socialism has been tried by one nation after another, and socialism never works, except we have people today who believe that in their arrogance that it can work today, and that it just uh, wasn't quite done right before. You have other uh, <clears throat> lies that are told as they as people seek power, such as those people who don't want to pay higher taxes just aren't patriotic. And those who don't want to let the government confiscate their hard-earned money and give it to undeserving people are just selfish. Well, what about the person who wants to keep all that money so they can take care of their children or their grandchildren or their parents and use it in a way to uh, help spread the gospel or to uh, privately help those who are in need and determine how it's used on their own? That's not necessarily selfish. And then one of the greatest lies that's been told for the last hundred years is the lie that the Constitution upholds the separation of church and state. And the First Amendment does not uh, indicate that at all. It just simply says that the federal government cannot establish a religion. And by that, they meant that the federal government could not uh, could not show favoritism toward one denomination or another. It was not that the state was uh, to be free from any religious influence or the voice of God, but that the voice of God was going to be free from any political influence and manipulation. So kings and political leaders today do the same thing that they did in the ancient world. They <clears throat> rewrite history. Uh, they promote myths in order to serve their own agenda, and they promote the big lie. The big lie was just as dominant in the ancient world as it is today. It was perfected in new ways during the period of the Third Reich under Joseph Goebbels uh, as he used a vast propaganda machine to completely uh, turn the thinking of Germans inside out. Three points I want to say about the big lie. The first has to do with the basic principle. The second has to do with the agent of the big lie technique. And the third has to do with soul issues. First of all, in terms of the basic principle, the basic principle is anything that's said loudly enough and frequently enough will come to be believed by the masses, no matter how irrational it may be or how much lack of evidence there may be for it. If everywhere you turn on the television, they keep telling you the same thing and you hear it over and over and over again, then before long you'll come to believe it, especially if it's hard to get alternative information. So that's the basic principle of the big lie. It's the basic element within propaganda. The agent of the big lie, the public lie technique, is in today's world the news media. This is what happened during the time of uh, the Bolsheviks in Russia and the Nazis in Germany as they destroyed any, uh, any sort of journalism that contradicted what, uh, what the communists or the Nazis said, and they promoted only their uh, favorite uh, newspapers who would promote their lies over and over again. Today we have a news media that has willingly pandered to the uh, certain political parties and political agendas because that's what their agenda is. And in this recent election cycle, the most embarrassing thing for us as Americans has been the complete lack of objectivity. They don't even try to maintain a facade of objectivity from numerous members of the media. Of course they're going to have their own opinions. But in the past, they have kept those in check and uh, at the at the recent uh, Democrat convention this summer. You had members of the press standing up and giving a standing ovation to the Democrat candidate. This is just an embarrassment. They, they, they don't even care to have the facade of objectivity anymore. So the media is willingly manipulated by the lies of the politicians because they all buy into the same, uh, same set of lies. And this leads to the exposure of the fundamental issue, which is a soul problem, a soul problem. 
And that's the same thing we are going to see with Jeroboam. Jeroboam has the same soul problem. His soul is enslaved to unrighteousness. When there is little influence from Bible doctrine, when there are few believers that are proclaiming the truth and even fewer that wish to hear it, then there is no understanding of objective truth. And what we have seen, uh, if you sit down and analyze the trends of the last 40 years, is that within the, the so-called evangelical or fundamentalist church, the Christian influence has been fragmented by an incredible number of false ideas about the Bible, about salvation, core doctrines that weren't, uh, weren't even debated in many of these circles 40 or 50 years ago have now, uh, have, are now questioned at the very seminaries that were the bulwark for those doctrines. And there are positions among, in, in theology today that didn't even exist when I went through seminary 30 or 40 years ago. And the fragmentation that has occurred and certain, certain blocks of Christianity over the past 40 years is just unbelievable. The arrogance is, uh, is palpable. And it's because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. The Christians have become as influenced by the relativism of the culture around them as the ancient Israelites were during the period of the judges. So that the average Christian, the average uh, theologian today is no different from his counterpart in the secular world. He doesn't think biblically anymore. He thinks in terms of the relativism of the culture. And when the leadership has fallen into relativism and the pew has fallen into relativism, then the voice from the, from the church has been stifled. And that is exactly what has happened. So there's little influence from Bible doctrine today. There's no understanding of objective truth or objective standards. And when there's no objective truth or standards then the soul becomes enslaved to its own lusts. And the people then have only one value system, and that is whatever makes me feel good, whatever stimulates my emotions, whatever gives me a, 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 a sense of stability and a sense of happiness, even if it's not real as long as I have the, the facade, the dream, the hope, uh, that there is going, everything's just going to work out. Don't confuse me with any facts. I don't want to analyze anything. I don't want to know the truth. I just want to feel good. And that is the trend of today. In contrast, when there is a large influence of Bible doctrine, which is what Western civilization saw coming out of the uh, Protestant Reformation, what Great Britain saw during the period of the rise of the Puritans, during the period of colonization in North America, the early period of uh, the influence of Christianity in the 1600s and 1700s here, then people had freedom in their soul. They understood that real freedom had to do with your relationship to Christ. Real freedom came because you trusted Christ as your Savior, and at that instant, the power of the sin nature, the darkness of the sin nature is, is destroyed, the, the bondage of the sin nature is destroyed, and man can have real freedom and real happiness, and there is real, true, objective uh, truth out there, and that man can uh, come under that and live in a way that that glorifies God. And so the dominant view in the 1600s, 1700s among people in this country meant that they had freedom in their soul, and so they could appreciate freedom and promote a system of freedom in their nation. But when the public lie becomes the accepted public opinion, and you are evil for questioning it, then we realize that Satan has won the day and satanic influence dominates just as, uh, and in the same, at the same time, soul freedom has been lost. And when soul freedom is lost, political and economic freedom will follow very quickly. Now, this is the situation we see with Jeroboam. He's promoting the public lie that this golden calf is the God who delivered them 
from slavery in Egypt. And he's building an entire uh, religious system around this that is going to justify the existence of the northern kingdom. He has to build a myth, an origin myth for the northern kingdom in order to create a sense of confidence and pride and unity within those northern tribes so they don't fragment. He is brilliant in the way he does this according to the standards of human viewpoint thinking. And so he establishes this altar, and at the end of chapter 12 we read, So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, and the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. Now, there's no chapter break and verse references verse divisions in the original. While he is establishing this religion, while he is uh, beginning this whole religious system, while he is uh, cleansing this altar and establishing this altar, at that very instant, we have a break in the drama. An unnamed prophet, we don't know who he was, we have no idea who he was, an anonymous prophet, breaks in on the scene with a word from God, a message from God directed to Jeroboam. This uh, section that we're going to look at in chapter 13 has three key characters. The first is Jeroboam the first. The second is the unnamed prophet who is called uh, the man of God. And the third key character is not introduced until verse 11. And this is the old prophet. And the key doctrine that is emphasized here is the importance of the Word of God and the integrity of the message of God, maintaining the integrity of the message of God. And when that integrity is lost, then the nation is going to uh, crumble and the leader is going to crumble. So this unnamed prophet just bursts on the scene. We read in verse 1, Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. As he is establishing the altar there, suddenly this unnamed man of God bursts on the scene, and he cries out, he screams out so that all can hear thousands of people gathered around, so they can all hear what he says, and he cries out, Uh, and addresses the altar and says, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Now, this sign is given to authenticate the previous message. The previous message won't be fulfilled for almost 300 years. But how do they know it's valid? There's going to be a near prophecy, a near immediate fulfillment to authenticate and validate the prophet's message. Verse 3, he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes ashes on it shall be poured out. Now, let's look at a little background here so we can understand what is happening. Jeroboam came to the throne. The nation split between north and south in 931 B.C. Jeroboam will be on the throne for 21 years from 931 to 910. In 722, which is approximately 210 years after the split, in 722, Assyria will invade down from the north and will conquer the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom will go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. And the people living in the northern kingdom, those who didn't flee to the south, many of the believers heeded the warnings of Isaiah and other prophets, and they fled to the south. And um, Jeroboam, I mean, and the, and the others that stayed in the north, the, one who, the ones who were apostate, were taken out in captivity, and they were uh, resettled throughout the Assyrian 
Empire. So the life of the northern kingdom was approximately 210 years. In 722, it ends its existence. Approximately 100 years after that, the king of Judah, Ammon, who is an evil king and who's the son of Manasseh, Menasheh, who is equally evil, uh, the, the grandson of Menasheh, Josiah is born. He's born in 640, and when he's eight years old, Ammon is assassinated. The people have revolted against his uh, wicked rule, and Josiah is installed on the throne of Judah as the 17th king of Judah when he is eight years of age. At that time, uh, Assyria has become quite weakened, even though it still exercises a general suzerainty over Judah. So Josiah becomes the king, and Josiah has a is positive toward doctrine and positive to the Lord, and he turns to the Lord. This is indicated in Second Chronicles chapter 34, uh, verse 32. He turns and he leads the nation, the southern kingdom, uh, back to the Lord. When he was eight years of age, he turned to the Lord, and when he was 12, he began to purge the land. And for uh, the next 20 years, he is purging the land. He's, he's destroying the altars to the Baals, to the Asherah. He's cleaning out the temple, and he is running the uh, priests of the Baals and the Asherah out of the southern kingdom. In 622 B.C., they will dis- when they're cleaning out the storerooms of the temple, which had been converted by uh, Menasheh and Ammon as, the, uh, as a temple to the Baals and the Asherahs, they're cleaning out the temple and they're going through and cleaning out all the storerooms. They discovered a scroll that was the book of the law. None of them had read the law. They hadn't read Deuteronomy. They hadn't read any of the Torah. They had completely lost any knowledge of doctrine among the priests. And they brought out the law, and Josiah began to read the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy, began to read the book of the law and discovered what his responsibilities were as the king before God. This motivated him to further spiritual reform and desire and stimulate a greater desire for political freedom from Assyria. See, it was Bible doctrine that gave him the capacity for freedom and liberty and to lead the people, the southern kingdom, away from their uh, political enslavement to Assyria. Unfortunately, but a Fortunately, in God's plan, in 609, he was killed at the Battle of Carchemish because it, at this time the southern kingdom had done so much, had been so negative, that God was not going to uh, restore them to their former glory. It was already determined that they would go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. Well, it was in this context that there is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, what we must understand is that prophecy in the Scripture had certain certain guidelines. You just couldn't come out and say, well, this is going to happen. But there were certain tests that were established in the law so that people would know whether or not a prophet was truly speaking from God. And the, these tests are found in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And the one that we're speaking of that relates to this is the one that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 uh, through 22. And in there uh, we read, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, God is speaking, when the prophet presumes to speak a word in my name, saying, Thus saith the Lord, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. In other words, if you're going to tamper with the word of God, change its meaning, then you're going to die, immediate death penalty. We must protect and preserve the integrity of the message of God's word. Verse 21, 
God says, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? Now, that's a common question. Most of you have have had situations like this. You'll be talking to somebody you know, and they'll say, well, God wants me to do this. Or it just seemed like the Holy Spirit talked to me last night when I was praying, and I need to do that. Well, how do you know it's the Lord? That is a biblical question to ask. How do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is the voice of God? Well, we've covered that before. God doesn't speak that way today, but in the Old Testament, he did. And so he gave criteria so you could know for sure whether it was God. Verse 22 of Deuteronomy 18, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, the test is 100% accuracy, not 97% accuracy or 98% accuracy, but 100% accuracy. So when the prophets gave a prophecy about something that might not be fulfilled for 200 years or 300 years or 2,000 years, they would also frequently give another prophecy that would have an immediate or a near fulfillment to validate their message that they were indeed a prophet from God, which is what we have taking place here, that there would be a, a far sign, which is this uh, child 300 or 200 years from now named Josiah, who would uh, sacrifice the priests of the high places on this altar, and the near fulfillment is this altar will be, will be split apart. Well, just as he announced this, Jeroboam, of course, like most tyrants, takes it personally and became immediately angry. And, of course, like the uh, Saddam Husseins and the Hitlers and the Stalins of history, he has to shut down anyone who is speaking in opposition uh, to him. And so as soon as Jeroboam heard this, he heard the man cry out against the altar in Bethel. That's in verse 4. He stretches out his hand from the altar to order his bodyguards to seize and to probably kill this prophet. And as he stretches out his hand, his arm immediately withers. And he couldn't move it or pull it back. He's just paralyzed. And at the same time, the near fulfillment occurs. The altar splits apart, and the ashes on the altar are poured out on the ground, indicating that the altar has now been uh, uh, desecrated and showing that God has completely rejected Jeroboam's religion, Jeroboam's sacrifice, and Jeroboam's altar. It is a sign from God that Jeroboam is completely outside of God's will and does not have his authorization for this. And so the king, of course, he's just concerned about his arm, and he immediately begins to beg the prophet to heal his arm. That's in verse 6. Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. See, this is typical human viewpoint. They want to use God for their own personal pleasure and agenda, but they don't want to submit their will to God at all. And so in grace, we see God heal him. God's grace always operates within judgment. And so his hand is restored to him, verse 6, and the king in gratitude now says to the, to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I'll give you a reward. And God had told him not to eat, not to stop, just go there and come back because he didn't want him to be, A, distracted from his mission, and B, he didn't want there to be any uh, suggestion that he was be, uh, beholden to or in uh, debt to the king for any reason at all. And so the man of God says to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I wouldn't go with you, uh, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he understands the integrity of the message that he's not to eat or drink, he's not to turn to the left or to the right, he goes one way, he comes home a different way in order to make sure that he's not ambushed on the way, and he is to fulfill the mission that God has given him. And up to this point, this prophet shows integrity. Now, before we get to the, what happens next in verse 11, 
I want to look at the fulfillment of this in Second Kings chapter 21. Second Kings chapter 21. This is one of the five most incredible prophecies in all of the Old Testament. If you're ever teaching on evidences that the Bible is the Word of God, this is one of those passages to indicate that. But, of course, you have to realize that liberal theologians have come along and said that First and Second Kings were really written after the Babylonian captivity. See, they can't stand uh, legitimate prophecy, so they have to uh, change the dates on everything. So it's really history that's being written as propaganda as opposed to, um, as opposed to actual truth. So we're in Second Kings, uh, chapter 20. Uh, let me see. Where do we want to go here? We're in Second Kings chapter, let's go to chapter 23. Second Kings chapter 23 describes all of the things that Josiah was doing in order to purify and reform the apostasy that had occurred in the southern kingdom and to remove all of the influence of all of the idols and all of the uh, false uh, all the false worship centers and all of the uh, fertility cults in the land. And so that is described down to about verse 14. Then in verse 15 we read, Moreover, in addition to all of these other altars and high places that he had destroyed, including the altars that Solomon had put on the uh, Mount of Corruption, which is across the uh, Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount, uh, he says, in addition to this, verse 15, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made both that altar and the high place, he broke down, he burned the high place, crushed it to powder, and burned the wooden image, that's the Asherah that was there as the object of uh, worship and fertility worship. Verse 16, as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs, and he burned them. See, he has killed the priests, executed them already, and now he is burning these bones. He's dug up the bones of the priests in these tombs, and he burns them on the altar and defiles it, which is a fulfillment of the uh, prophecy that the man of God made in uh, 1 Kings chapter 13. And then verse 17, he says, well, what gravestone is this? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah. And that's the rest of the story, starting in verse 11. So let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 13. Now, what happens in the rest of the story shows what happens when you fail to maintain the integrity of God's word when you don't when you're not consistent in interpreting it and applying it. And so we have an old prophet. Now, this old prophet is confused, he's mixed up, he's he's apostate, he's mystical. There's a lot that we don't know about this old prophet. All we're told is he lived there in Bethel. His sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done. So he hears the whole report on what had happened at the altar that day. And apparently he's so old that he just didn't want to get out in all the festivities and go to the altar. And so they come back and they tell him what had happened and who this unnamed prophet was. And he wants to know where he went, so he follows him. And in verse 13, he has his son saddle up the donkey And he begins to ride after the man of God. And finally he catches up with him in verse 14 and finds him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? He said, I am. And he said to him, verse 15, Come home with me and eat bread. Now remember what God said? Don't eat. Don't turn to the left or the right. Don't eat anywhere. Don't drink anywhere. Go one way. Come back another way. And so he says, Come home and eat with me. And the prophet said, And again he's sticking with what the word of God said. Uh, God told me not to go in with you. I can't eat bread or drink water with you in this place, for 
I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by going the way you came. Now the old prophet is speaking in verse 18. He says, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. Now, this is a test to see if the unnamed prophet will maintain the integrity of God's word as a prophet. And he fails, and so he is going to die. He will be mauled and killed by a lion because he fails to maintain the integrity. Rather than saying, God told me to do this, he's not going to change his mind no matter what kind of experience you have, no matter how, what kind of visions you saw, no matter what you claim, no matter what uh, miracles you might uh, claim to validate your message from God, I know that God told me not to eat or drink with anyone but to go straight home. And so whatever you're saying is wrong. God is not going to contradict himself. Rather than letting doctrine determine his thinking, and evaluate the situation, he succumbs to this lie on the basis of experience. And this goes directly to the second test that God established for evaluating revelation or any sort of claim for revelation. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Remember, the first test was in Deuteronomy 18, that anything, anytime you predict what is going to happen, saying, thus saith the Lord, it has to come true 100% of the time. God has a high standard for, for prophets. And in chapter 13 we read, and this, this is one that applies to many things today, especially within the charismatic movement. If there arise, verse 1, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. He says, this is what God told me. God, an angel appeared to me. Uh, I healed someone. Uh, this miracle occurred. And, it, and I want you to notice in this passage that Moses doesn't say it is a false miracle or it's deceptive. He accepts the miracle as legitimate. Verse 2, and the sign or wonder comes to pass. He actually predicts something. There is actually a healing that occurs. The sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. Okay, so here's a situation. Somebody comes along, they, they're teaching false doctrine, and they validate it with a miracle, and they invite everybody to come forward, and they're going to slap them on the forehead, and they'll get slain in the spirit and get healed, and say, See, I'm a prophet from God. The test isn't the miracle. But that's what confuses everybody. They say, oh, well, I, I, my mother got healed at an Amy Semple McPherson healing ceremony. Or I knew somebody that spoke in tongues. Or I know somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. That's all the way it works. And at their church, they raise people from the dead. I've heard that one, too. They have all of these things, these claims that are made. And what, what happens is so many people who call them say, well, you know, how do you know that really happened? See, if you look at this passage, it doesn't matter whether it really happened or not because the test isn't the alleged miracle. The test is the message and is the message consistent with the word of God and the message that is being promoted by the false prophet in this example is let us go after other gods, which is a direct violation of the second commandment to have no other gods before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the, that's the test. Are you going to let experience dictate your interpretation of the Word of God or let the Word of God dictate your interpretation of experience? And we live in a world today when people try to interpret the Word of God on the basis of their experience over and over and over again. It's all about emotion. It's about feeling. It's about experience. It's not about content. And nobody has any content, so they can't evaluate whether anything is spiritually true or not. Uh, verse 3, Moses goes on to say, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet 
or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, God is going to allow some people at some times to have real miracles to test you to see if you're really going to stick with what the Word of God says or go with experience. And that's the test in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. The, uh, the old prophet tells him that God told him he could come and eat with him, and so he buys that instead of evaluating it on the basis of a previous revelation. And they come to his home, and the next few verses describe the sumptuous meal that they eat. And then after he has eaten, verse 23, he gets back on his saddle, heads on his way, and as he goes down the road, verse 24, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse is thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it, and the lion also stood by the corpse. Now this is obviously divine intervention, because the lion's not eating the donkey which lions like to do, I understand. And the lion is not devouring the man. He's just standing there. Now, when the prophet, the old prophet, hears about this in verse 26, he realizes what has happened, and he understands it correctly. That's what's confusing about him. Here, he's just, on one hand, he's deceptive, and on the other and, and seemingly confused. And on the other hand, he recognizes that this is from the Lord. And at the end of verse 26, he says, Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he goes out to find the corpse. And he says, He found the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. This is probably an hour or two later. The lion had not eaten the corpse and torn the donkey, and the prophet took up the corpse for the man of God, laid it on the donkey, brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him, lays him, lays the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him. Verse 31, so it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Let my bones lie beside his bones. That's what Josiah is referencing over there in, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 23. And this is in fulfillment of uh, what the Lord had announced. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. So what's the conclusion of all this? in relationship to Jeroboam and the political situation in Israel. Miracles don't affect people. Miracles don't affect people. Positive volition or negative volition affects people, and God can. God withered Jeroboam's arm. He split the altar. He has all of this empirical data about God's intervention in his life, and he ignores it because his heart is set against God, negative volition. And there are some people that are that way. No matter how much proof there is, just like the earth dwellers in the book of Revelation, they, their heart is set against God. Their volition is negative. So after this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways, but again he made priests from every class of people, not just Levites, setting up his own religion, every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places himself. So anybody who wants to be a priest can be a priest. And this was the sin of the house of Jeroboam. And we'll hear about it again and again as we go to different kings down through the history of Israel. We'll hear about so-and-so who did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's what this is referring to, the idolatry, uh, the idolatrous system that Jeroboam established. Now, judgment's going to come on the house of Jeroboam as a result of this, and again we'll have a, another prophet show up on the scene and a remarkable prophecy in chapter 14, and we'll get to that next time. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this time to... Uh, study the Word to see your work in history and to see that down through the history of Israel in both the northern and southern kingdom, 
That which ultimately determined the course of history was the volition of the people and ultimately their volition toward you. And, Father, the same is true in our nation. The only hope for our nation is for people to turn to you, to turn to Jesus Christ, to recognize that there is no hope in any other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from that, there is no hope, there is no stability, there is no peace for this nation. For the only hope is in you. Father, we have that hope. And so we can rest, we can relax, no matter what happens. We know that you are in control. And so we can have peace and joy and stability because of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.